0: Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions, ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash word for more details.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
0: Welcome back. Welcome back to Word in Your Ear. Um, There is an episode of Hancock's Half Hour, which is called The Missing Page. And it starts with the lad himself going to the East Cheam Library and going to the librarian and asking for the complete history of the Holy Byzantine Empire... Plato's Republic, The Iliad, and then Albrecht's Roman Law. And the librarian is very approving. He says, these are the best books we have in the library. I'm so grateful you've asked for them. And then Hancock takes them, puts them on the ground, and then stands on them in order to reach to the top shelf, (laughs) which is where the thriller that he's after is actually found. And the book is called. The book he's trying to get is called "Lady, Don't Fall Backwards." But now, if if any kind of offspring of the lad himself were attending the East Jean Library, once they've taken delivery of Johnny Rogan's new books, it would be obvious what you'd ask for in order to get the maximum elevation on the shelves. Because I've never seen books in, about rock bands as big as these, and it. it Brick-like. I, I, I had to ask Johnny how he'd managed to get them here this evening, they, with the benefit of a low loader, I oh, think. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're extraordinary pieces of work, and so we're welcoming two people to talk about them. Obviously, the author. Would you please welcome Johnny Rogan? And then also, to supply, I suppose, a bit of a, bit of a kind of American context and also a kind of musician's view, uh, friend of the podcast and uh, previous guest on this, on this very stage, Sid Griffin. Yay. Sid has come as Dennis Wilson this evening.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Calm down, ladies. He's wearing legs. <laughs> He's married. Sorry, girls. Um, <laughs> Form an orderly cue. <laughs> anyway, let's, to start uh, here... Tell us, Johnny, how the birds first entered your life. Can you remember when this was? What were the cirques? It it was the 10th of June, 1965. (laughs) Get get used to this level of
3: detail, by the way. Um, It was at 12.30 as well, I can tell you the time. It was on um, the light programme I'd come home and... Whoops. No, I'd come home to have my customary um, cup of coffee with two chocolate biscuits, which I normally had as my lunch... (laughs) <laughs> in ninety sixty summer, summer of '65, I'd seen the birds in Billboard. Um, I wasn't the most literate person at the time, thinking back. I'd just failed the 11 pluses, I recall. And um, I saw this... I was always on the lookout. I always read the Billboard chart, which I'm sure you, you did too. And it was a great predictor of the future um, because things that... Hammond and Billboard sometimes would translate back to the UK some didn't like Gary Lewis and the Playboys forget all that Mm -hmm. but occasionally you would hear something extraordinary and I was always on the lookout for it and there was a a song called Mr Tambourine Man I I don't think I even knew what a tambourine was and I remember looking at this what does this mean you know it's not a tangerine what the hell is it and the group's name fascinated me I thought it was... Is, it, is that Byrids? How do you pronounce this? It, it never... It was... You know, that's as innocent as, as the world was. But they played it um, on the light programme at this lunchtime. It was an extraordinary thing hearing it for the first time. I mean, you know, the opening chords is uh, are just, you know, mind-blowing anyway. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's what, so that's where it all started. It literally started then, at the beginning, from probably what was the first play on... You know, more or less the first play, I think... Probably had been played on Caroline a couple of times or something.
4: And there's a lovely moment where you go and see it in the Albert Hall in 1968, and you wore a suit because you thought you had to wear a suit to go to the
3: Albert Hall. I you did. Know. I remember yeah. that very well. Yeah. I, I, there were I, standards I, in those I'd, I, 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 no, I, <laughs> I don't appreciate it. it, it well, I'd been to mass. Um, I went to five thirty oh, mass. It's very, very good. And got the fifty two bus. And um, yes, I remember it well. And uh, you know, what, and what a lineup it was. Joe Cocker was there. The Move. You know, it was it was a fantastic lineup. Um, was
0: that a pop prom?
3: it wasn't called that it was called uh, it was called it was, it was for what were called disabled kids I think at the time it, um, it was um, a, a sort of charity doing the birds had flown over specially to headline it the move topped the bill for the first half no no the birds topped the bill for the first half and the move for the second half It's strangely structured and throughout the second half I was thrilled because people were shouting out bring back the birds <laughs> And and of course you have to remember in the context of the whole thing is that in '68 the the birds weren't revered in the way they are now? Right. Um, uh, I'd heard they'd had a terrible um, live show because all you read about them was—I mean, don't forget, n- none of this—you never saw them live or never saw concerts back then. So you were totally reliant on things like "Enemy call, um, "America Calling," in "Enemy," and that's—and all I'd heard was the birds terrible live. And this reputation was there. I thought, are they going to really mess it up? And they're going to the Royal Albert Hall. This is going to be a disaster. And of course it wasn't, it was a, they, they played great. And they, they, they probably did play great in America as well. But,
0: so yeah. 1965 was when they yep. first entered your life. Sid, what about you?
2: Like a lot of people my age, I'm 62 in September, so I'm retiring. So, um, that was supposed to be a joke. Sorry. You see, I don't have a job. So I should have set the joke up better. Um, like a lot of people my age, I couldn't afford uh, just any old album or any old single. So you had to have a, 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 pur- a reason to purchase it besides you you liked it or you knew what it was. So... I waited for Greatest Hits packages. So I would have never bought a Gary Lewis and the Playboys single, but I would have bought Gary Lewis and the Playboys Best Of or something like that. So I bought Bird's Greatest Hits and liked it. But interestingly enough, didn't buy another album until Untitled came out, and I liked that a lot. And perhaps because we're in Kentucky, we didn't have a ton of dough. What really happened for me, even though I knew who they were as a kid, by 75, uh, David, I didn't... I didn't like the current pop music scene at all. I felt very alienated, so I was looking for something else. I bought Charlie Parker records. I bought this. I bought that. And I bought Turn, 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 the album. Now, for those... In 1975. 75. (laughs) Ten years after the fact. And I already had two Birds albums, you recall. But the point is this. You were told throughout the late 60s, early 70s, that 1960s albums, particularly pre-Sgt. Pepper, were the hit single and filler. Now, other than maybe The Beatles, uh, that was pretty much true for so many acts. So I didn't buy it. Uh, I didn't buy anybody's album. It wasn't a Greatest Hits record because I didn't have a lot of money. And I bought Turn, 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 and though I realized it was flawed and not perfect. I thought it was a brilliant album. So 10 years after Johnny, I finally got on the Birds train <laughs> and have remained there ever since.
0: <laughs> so just uh, briefly explain, Johnny, these two books, Volume 1 and Volume 2, what are they? <laughs>
3: Their books on the birds.
0: No, okay. But, but to be fair, you already wrote a, a
4: fantastic book, *Timeless Flight*, uh, originally. and, yeah, and this true, is yeah. nothing to do. with This is this is a whole new
3: venture, isn't it? But I wrote that. 30, I wrote that in the the late 70s, right. and um, these were. I don't. I, I've just been doing these for. Decades. I mean, they're not necessarily linear either. Um, it's a strange thing because people say, oh, you know, when's, when's volume two coming out? They don't realise I wrote the Kevin Kelly chapter in that in 2007, which is before the first volume came out. But
0: I'm very good at hoarding things and completing chapters and leaving them in boxes. So the, the first volume is the story of the birds? Yes, it is, yes. And the second volume... Is the story of the dead birds. There you go. <laughs> Couldn't have put it better
3: myself. Uh, uh, no, and it also... My th- favourite. There's nothing, there's, there's nothing that um, is repeated from volume to volume. There's no repetition. In other words, the first volume is a group story. The second volume, to take, for example, Gene Clark or Graham Parsons, um, I don't deal with Gene's time in The Birds. Well, obviously, one has to, to in a page and a half, just to remind you, and similarly with Graham's stuff, but really it's it's about what he did before, what he did after, and how the, how all that um, complemented what he, what he did in the birds story itself. But the, the the main thrust of it would be in volume one for the group story, and the second volume is. A psychological study of all of them. I suppose it is extraordinary. Yeah. We'll come to that. Yeah, sure.
0: In time, we've got a little thing on the three main
4: characters yeah. here. This is, this is well, this is uh, uh, Roger McGuinn or Jim McGuinn as he was then in the is it
3: the Chad Mitchell trio? Well, he was actually called Skinny McGuinnie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Playing the banjo. Um... So tell us about him. What are his qualities? What did he? What did? He, what, did he, what made him a kind of key member of the birds? Well, I mean, he was the you know self-styled leader of the
3: birds, and in musicians' unions' terms, he, he was the leader of the birds. Um, and today, if you talk to Mac, uh, Crosby or Hillman, they'll say yes, he was the heart and soul of the birds, and he was always the leader. And that's something I think you know that they've learned to agree with. But. Um, he he emerged from the folk tradition. You can see he's, he was a great banjo player. We we think of him as a great rickenbacker player, but um, he he it wasn't just about the guitar. Uh, he was a great rickenbacker player. Um, he came from Chicago originally, and um, basically worked his way up. He was even in the Brill boarding at one point, um, writing songs, not very successfully, and then he he joined the. Chad Mitchell trio and eventually found his way to LA and in 64 with Gene and Crosby formed a little trio called The Jet Set and they then decided they'd be a
0: fully fledged rock group by getting Michael Clark in and then Chris Hillman finally. So, did, did he always have that distinctive singing style, distinctive voice yes, from early he, I, on?
3: Yes, I'd say he did, he did. Yes, indeed. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it, 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 and it comes very much through the
3: folk tradition, you know. Even today, I mean, he's got the folk den, which and he tries to he tries to sing like an Irishman. It's not, you know, a lot of people find it. Not, he doesn't necessarily do it very successfully, but um, in terms of where he came from in the states, they do sound, you know, that's yeah. he was he was quite competent, very good. And Crosby's from a,
4: a, an incredibly kind of well-heeled background, isn't he? And was Les, Les ba, uh,
3: Baxter's Balladeers. Is that the name of the group? Yes. Um, and he
4: was, you know, um, expelled from school, I think. And, um, well, no,
3: he's a Santa Barbara boy and um, uh, he comes from the Van Cortland family who are, are really very, very wealthy, as you rightly say. His father was a cinematographer and um, his mother was, was a blue blood. Uh, they, they definitely, you know, very, very wealthy background. And uh, that's carried him through in many ways. I mean, his personality was defined by that. He did go to private schools and he was always a rebel. Um, he was arrested arre-
4: for housebreaking, I think, at one point.
3: Well, they're just kid stuff, really. Yeah. I mean, he didn't need the money. So. <laughs> uh, but um, he's, he's very fresh-faced there. Eddie Tickler called them Les Bacta's Les little dears, as I always enduringly recall. And um, Crosby's very embarrassed about all this. This is, the com- this is commercial folk. And Crosby being the great idealist would prefer that this stuff never existed he 's very embarrassed about that he ever had to do this um, he would have Prefer to have been like Travis Edmondson or a starving folky that, yes. that we, you know, and he did a bit of that as well but in order to make money he did this too, um, as you'll find with as you know with a lot of rock stars it's not so much hypocrisy but they they're forced to take on different roles they cannot play the
0: artist 100% of the time and um, there's a good example See, give us a bit of American perspective on this you know that, that Crosby's kind of background you know what? family pretty much came over on the Mayflower didn't they or something
2: yeah, the, the, they're they're Dutch, and I can't, there's a Dutch-American society um, that I can't remember the name of, like Daughters of the Revolution and Daughters of the Confederacy, and I think, as I recall, his mother was a, um, a member of it, and I think the guy on Doghouse Base, isn't that his brother Ethan, his late brother Ethan? Yeah, otherwise known as Chip. Yeah, otherwise, otherwise known as Chip there on the Doghouse committed Base. Suicide in, uh, and, yeah, committed suicide. Yeah, committed suicide, tragically enough, and... In the States in the early 1960s, what we now call the great folk scare, there was uh, the two strands. <laughs> and the two strands are, and if you meet anybody like Michael Oakes, who's Phil's younger brother, or any of that crowd, Judy Collins or even McGuinn, I guess, they'll tell you there are two strands. And one is the, the people that were like John Cohen of the New, York, New Lost City Ramblers that wanted authenticity and to be the real thing and to go sit on the porch in Appalachia and really learn how it was done. And then the other people that wanted to make some money out of it. So when the new Christie minstrels, and by the way, the Christie minstrels were a folk act around the American Civil War and after the American Civil War that went on and on and on like the drifters or the coasters. No original members, they went on for like 40 years. So when the folk boom came back, let's have the new Christie minstrels. And yes, it refers to minstrel show music. And a guy named Randy Sparks and a number of other people would put together these bands, commercial folk music bands. Chris Hill was in one called, what was it called, the Green Bar, the Back Porch? yeah, yeah. Green Bar Boys and the, the Back Porch Majority or something like Back that. Majority, there, yeah. there are a lot of these bands in America, and this, the reason Crosby's embarrassed about this I mean, is because the Coat and Tide denotes that they're in the commercial side of things, where they do songs, oh, the, the great movie A Mighty Wind yeah, we, by... by uh, yeah. Um,
0: Christopher, got, Guest.
2: Christopher Guest Christopher
3: Guest what well, he doesn't realise of course it became hip when Lounge came in and that's beyond his imagination he doesn't understand what Lounge is but no, you saw, no. these, these albums actually started selling but if you <laughs> see
2: A Mighty Wind that's sort of what they were doing for real not as a parody, not as a joke that's what they were doing for real
4: right, so that's, that's David Crosby in fact this, this group, the New Christian Minst- Minstrels
2: is a classic example of that. and Gene was in them for two, yeah. two albums
0: yeah. so Gene Clark, tell us about Gene Clark well, he's a Kansas boy and um,
3: he started off there and he was always a songwriter from very early on. And basically, it's, it's one of those Hollywood moments. The, the new Christie ministers are coming through town. They, without going into the full details, there was a, um, a problem. They needed a, another singer urgently. And um, he was playing in a local group and they said, take him. And, you know, within a month... He's, he's signed to CBS going to Hawaii and, you know, he, he's come straight from that community from nothing and he's, he's suddenly in one of the you know biggest aggregations in the world and a year after that he's in the birds and I don't think they've hardly seen him in Kansas since he left. They didn't even know he was in the birds. I mean, a year later, he left the Christie's pretty promptly. He couldn't handle the flying, he couldn't handle the... It, 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 it was very intense being in the Christie Mysteries. You've got a lot of Great singers in there, you know. Barry Maguire's in there, who's and these people are, are, are full-on entertainers. And Gene was always neurotic as well. You know, he he was he was, a, he was a, naturally a singer-songwriter. He wasn't um, a commercial performer. And to be in the Christies, you have to be top of your game every single night. And these these guys were. They were seasoned entertainers. And and Gene had a problem in there. He couldn't be number one in a group like that. There was there was five or six or seven contenders. And as Sid. Mentioned Randy Sparks, who who ran it like a military operation. It was an incredibly yeah. um, competitive thing, and he was really big on competition. Sparks, he he liked that idea that you know you send them out there. It was like a football game, you know, you you you, you win. And um, Gene was never quite comfortable in that that environment, but you know, and so he
0: he went to LA. He met McGuinn, Crosby, and.
3: There's the birds. So
0: there's the birds, and those, are, you know, in classic fashion, that's the front line, isn't it? Yeah. Crosby and McGuinn. Yes, and they've done that photograph very well without realizing that. Yeah. I and uh, everybody knows their place, you know. Rhythm section goes to the back there. <laughs>
2: God's it. I have an interesting insight into this photograph. I, maybe Johnny knows it, but I bet most of you don't. There's a wonderful woman who just retired from Oxford University's library. She was part of the researchers there and named Toby Marks. Toby, are you here by any chance? Toby Marks uh, is from Chicago, and she worked in a sandal shop. Now, the sandal shops of America, where you got leather goods and things made, were ground zero for hippies in 61, 62, 63 before they knew they were hippies. So on the very, very, very first birds tour of America, the birds came in, Crosby came in to the leatherware store and said he wanted a, we heard you all could make shirts made of leather. And they said, yes, we can make a shirt made of leather. It'll be hot as hell, but we can do that. We've done it before. So Toby Marks of Chicago, Illinois, who now lives 45 miles away from here in the Oxford area, and her friends started to make David Crosby a leather shirt. And she told me at Bluegrass School, which there is one in this country, she told me sitting next to me, by the time they'd come around on the second tour, David had put on a bit of a belly. So that's why it's a cape. (laughs) the person that made it told me it was originally a shirt thank you <laughs>
4: very Superb. good Superb. very good which became his signature of course didn't it?
2: Yeah. yes his signature <laughs> garment and it's been yeah. stolen i asked him about this and he demurred on was it a shirt part but he says sad to say i did have it for years and years and years and someone broke into my house once and stole some th- items and that was one of them
3: well he actually had two he had he had a leather cape and a, and, and, and and that's a green suede cape um, which is which? These things are important. seriously, visually, all this is very important. It's really important. That, that's the iconic look that, that they had in the that, summer of '65. That is Carnaby Street for yeah. a start, oh, which, which, yeah. which in itself is significant that they chose that as as, as yeah, a Yes so talk street. about that. talk yeah. about this whole. Well, it's thing. Carnaby Street in August '65, and there's Crosby with the with the green suede cape. Um, you notice those white polo necks, they were purchased in Carnaby Street. White polo necks were, were popular at the time. Michael Clark loved them. Um, McGuinn got one as well. McGuinn got a tweed suit, which he's not wearing there, but he also bought that. They had this incredibly English look when they went back. God knows what they thought of them when they went back to L.A., because they were all dressed in in this odd fusion... Like of, of, of hip ...British hipness and, and, and tweed, which it looks... Quite uncool. But of course, McGuinn's already got the, the, the signature granny glasses, um, which I believe it originally, it was John Sebastian that inspired them. John Sebastian told him, he had these cobalt glasses and said, if you stare into, um, at night into the lamps in New York and shake your head, you, you can get a bit high And he said, I'll buy them. We made our own entertainment. And he replaced them with, with, um, he got his optician. Because McGuinn short-sighted, it also meant that he he didn't, he he looked like Clark Kent. If you see early photographs of him in the jet set, he looked like Clark Kent. But um, he would never wear glasses. He was always stumbling into things. And there's the look. You've got Michael Clark, the dead ringer of Brian Jones, of course. Um, And Hillman, just not quite... Trying to be sort of similar but not quite doing it. And Gene, you know, again, the Beatle influence is strong.
0: So, t- t- talk to us a, a little bit about, you know, they, they, their first record is Mr. Tambourine Man. Isn't that yeah. very much it's number one all over the world? Indeed, yes. They didn't want to do it? Is that fair to say? No. They, um, their manager, Jim
3: Dixon, came up with the idea. He, he you know, he was familiar with Dylan. Um, he, he was the one... When well, he phoned, he said to me, I was betting the house on tambourine men, but tambourine men was more important to me than the birds at that point. And that's, I think, pretty significant. Um, Crosby particularly didn't like it. Crosby didn't like Dylan. And uh, and then he became the greatest expert on Dylan in the world, you know, <laughs> according to, to, to people around him. But it's, it's, that's not true either, but there's, there's, there's an element of truth in that. But it really... Um, McGuinn knew Dylan in from New York, and actually said, "You know, I always felt a bit competitive towards Dylan, which um, pretty presumptuous on <laughs> Suggested, <laughs> but no, they they didn't at first, and um, but it was it was pushed, and I think when. The, the, when McGuinn worked out that solo and how they could compress the song and make it into, you know, take it away from the folk into a rock and roll rhythm, it it worked. And I think as soon as they, they, it it came into fruition. And even Michael's drums, which people don't really speak about, if you listen to Prefly, it's incredibly... A military-style drumming. It's like some, somebody that lived, that's been in a military band at the age of 12 or something, and that's all he can do. But even when Hal Blaine, um, who played on the session, he actually incorporated some of that Michael military-style drumming, and, and that you know that's that's part of the magic of the song too. It, 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 you know, the, the, you could actually do a whole thesis on the construction of. Mr. Tambourine Man and how it came into being, but um, yes, it was. It was. Um, but I think you could,
0: you could also do, uh, do do a book on the look of the birds because oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I can remember I was 15 when this arrived, yeah. and the thing about the birds was they didn't just sound great; they looked fantastic. You couldn't get over looking at them, and, and McGuinn's glasses were really important to him on television. Because yeah. he got these close-ups where he looked over. Them. No, he looked you know. like a professor. He did. He looked yeah. charismatic with the glasses yeah. in a yeah. way that he didn't. Without he like an absent-minded glasses. professor because it was like this staring at you <laughs> almost. Defiantly. Kind of Dickensian De- <coughs> De- 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 <coughs> figure. Really.
3: Yeah. yeah. And uh,
0: excuse my black eye. That's another story. But oh, that is so another fine. story. So
3: yeah. Yeah. So yeah.
0: But uh, but they, they they've still said had a very influential look, haven't they? Throughout.
2: Well, there's no question they had a very influential look, I'd say, up until uh, well, one of the first bands to wear cowboy hats when they did Sweetheart. And they, uh, if you ever want to get Chris Hillman to laugh, says the insider, refer to the Clarence air as the hippie birds because of the extreme long hair and the beards. They're the archetypal hippie-looking band, more than the dead. Because if you look at Lesh and, and uh, the guys in the dead... They're not really growing the hair up to the no, shoulder length, no, no, no. the unkempt beards, you know, and the the Clarence White birds with Skip Batten and all that really did. So they were just looking at them. In fact, that's one reason I bought Turn, Turn, Turn. It looked like a cool cover. And looking back to um, Griffith Park, where there's the, uh, the the two paths meet in Griffith Park, which is a Big public park in Los Angeles, near where I used to live. I stood there and the fish I shot that I think Barry Feinstein did. Their album covers looked great. They looked great on the album covers. Their album covers looked great. And I gotta say, in the 1960s battle to see who had the best bowl haircut, you've got three (laughs) brilliant Prince Valiants right there. With George Harrison in help, look at George Harrison's hair in help. It is unbelievable. But other than him or Brian Jones, you've got three winners right there there
4: you See, say how it. many groups in about 1991 there you, you
2: are like, here's, the, here's another group sit <laughs> <of> yeah. <laughs> on the left there. i can give you a cheap laugh right now ready yeah go on i had flu of about 103 and i vomited about 10 minutes later um, Very good. it was about 112 in the desert when we found that place and I was uh, really, really ill, and I begged them not to do the photo shoot. But that's Stampede by the, by the Springfield, which, of course, is a band that bizarrely... Maybe Johnny can shed some, some light on this. This is our imitation of an unreleased Buffalo Springfield album cover. They shot the cover. The album never came out. Bizarrely, Stampede, this album cover we're imitating was given out by Scholastic Books for the school year of 67, 68, or 66, 67, because they'd already printed the cover, and they gave these out at schools in America, and you were supposed to take it and put it as a protective cover on something you wanted at home. So I, even I, it's true, Johnny, even I as a kid had the cover of Stampede, of an album that never came out by a band I'd barely heard of.
3: <laughs> yeah, it was legendary. Well, the, the, he shut up the cowboy hat,
2: Yeah, we're trying to do the the whole thing. But what I was going to ask Johnny is, do you all know the story that Hillman was unsure of the birds for a long time? And he actually took McGuinn to the Whiskey in April 66 to see the Buffalo Springfield and say, Roger, maybe we should manage bands. What do you think about these guys? Yeah, well,
3: Hillman specifically was asked to manage them, which was an extraordinary thing because, you know, Hillman had never managed anything in his life. And and the idea that a member of the birds would manage another band was extraordinary and Hillman to give him his, his due said well no and they ended up with um, a pair called Charlie Green and Brian Stone who
0: managed Sonny Chair and that, that so they, they did okay the well, so we want to talk about ah. their, their, their relationships with a couple of, uh, of, of key artists they were is it fair to say they were obsessed with the Beatles Early on, certainly. Didn't and they saw them on eggs a and then even then.
4: A *Hard Days Night*? Wasn't a *Hard Days Night* the, the
3: yeah? Big well, the the whole early image of, of the birds before they found the green cape and the leather cape and and the, and the granny glasses. They, they you know they they, they actually had suits, um, skinny the, ties, and, and uh, yeah. well, no, but actually you know black suits, rather yeah. like this. And um, they got rid of them. It was part of the original contract but they had to get the suit that um, the. the, the Before they signed to CBS, there's there's a a woman who's very important in all this called Naomi Hirschhorn, who is an off-Broadway producer, and she put the money up for for the birds. She she gave them five grand, which is a hell of a lot of money then to have an interest in in an idea, basically, that wasn't signed to anybody. And part of that money went on the suits, and then they systematically the suits were stolen and Michael gave his away to Little Richard's drummer. I mean, they, the birds are very blase. They move very quickly and the suits became passe to them. And But yes, but that was the Beatle image and they moved away from the Beatles pretty quickly. I mean, after... even By the time they did the first album, they were more into Dylan than they were into the Beatles and the Beatles thing had gone when I say the Beatles I mean the Mersey Beatles Right. Yeah. but they always followed the Beatles and there was always this parallel thing going on they met the Beatles in August 65 there was a hell of a lot of um, you know I've seen letters from uh, George Harrison to Derek Taylor saying you know tell McGuinn that we're doing a song called If I Needed Someone and it's I've taken it from the Bells of Rimney and and She Don't Care About Time kind of fuse the two of them and stuff but like McQueen
4: this. Paul was always saying he was looking for a sound that was somewhere between The Beatles and Bob Dylan. Oh, he did, it? yeah. That, yeah. Was,
3: that, was, that was his dream of what The yeah. Birds
0: were at that, that particular time. Is it the case that for kind of folkies like they'd been before before The Birds, seeing and hearing Hard Day's Night kind of changed what they thought they could do in terms of a band, what they could do with... Well, I think it, guitars it, it, ch-
3: it changed it for everybody in, in America at that time. I mean, you know, the, the Beatles changed everything. Um, um, I mean, Crosby talks about how he went in to see that film and then he came out and he actually was twirling around lampposts, you know, which, if you think of the size of Crosby, it's amazing <laughs> that he would be athletic enough to do Bending that. Lamp- but that's how high they were getting from just seeing the Beatles on stage, as, as everybody in America in 64 was, of course. I mean, Gene Clark famously, when he, you know, he, he talks about hearing them on a jukebox and thinking, you know, it's, it's a road to Damascus thing and I'm off to L.A., yeah.
1: um,
3: you know, same old story. But that photograph is amazing because it's from Sergeant Pepper's, as you can... That was the Day in the Life recording, I think, wasn't it? Excuse me? Was it
4: a Day in the Life they're recording that day, I
3: think? Um, I'm not sure. I, I reckon it might be Lovely Rita, yeah. but it, it could be. Crosby had, yes, he, he'd... Crosby was played a Day in the Life... Um, one has to be very careful about what, what day is in in, in, in beetle-ology. But um, I love the fact that he's um, effectively, uh, you know, <laughs> there's four, three beetles and, oh, Crosby. Oh, that's, is that David Crosby? No, that, 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 that isn't Ringo, is it? No, there he is. And he's, I, I always thought he'd... I deliberately put that in that book because um, not, I don't think anybody had really seen that photograph. I I found it. And um, years ago and I thought it was great
0: the fact that there were three Beatles and Crosby in the same photograph And he So, that, so that was their relationship with the Beatles yeah. but the other, the other key one is obviously with Bob Dylan Well that is a very
3: very significant that's really early that's hmm, I, they'd recorded Mr. Tambriman. it hadn't even come out at that stage and look how cool they look You know, look at Michael at the back with the stripes um, Crosby's got some strange looking Angora thing and um, as Beguin said to me, Dylan is there and he's going like this, as in, I don't know if I'm crazy being here, but look, I'm here. And it was at a Japanese restaurant. I've never been able to find out where the actual venue was, to tell you the truth.
2: But it was... Um, th- well, he saw him at Ciro's, which is now the comedy store.
3: Yeah, it's, that isn't Ciro's, though. That was yeah. at a restaurant. That, that Ciro's was, has no yeah. steps. Yeah, well, they are. And um, he... Um, but he was incredibly supportive of them, wasn't he? No, he was. I mean, incre- you know, he, was incredibly. No,
4: that, there's a lovely story in the book where he, he yeah. goes to the CBS party, but he refuses to go to the CBS party unless he can take the birds with him and introduce them.
3: Yeah, to the he boys. said it, 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 they try to get in, and they say you're not invited, and um, a bit like this gig tonight. <laughs> and He said, "Well, it, you know, if they're if they're not uh, coming in, I'm, I'm not coming in." And um, and that had a massive effect. I mean, his influence at CBS, being Dylan changed everything for everybody, just as Doris Day's influence at Dylan, Mm. um, sorry, at CBS as well. Um, The fact that the birds are represented by, produced by Terry Melcher, who is Doris Day's son, coupled with the fact that Dylan was actively in their corner were very important factors.
0: Would you say say that that was also important to Bob Dylan, not just the fact that they sold a lot of records or whatever, in kind of moving him away from but he knew absolutely how important as you would...
2: Well, I think are, yeah. he, he, when he heard The Animal's House of the Rising Sun and Tambourine Man and so on, and Manford Man's probably early things, clearly, but it was interesting. It's Bob Newworth. It's the guy that told Bob Dylan, you've, you've got to get on the, the bandwagon, these guys, the birds, listen to this stuff. This is fantastic. This is your music. And Newworth swears that the first few times he played Dylan... Um, certain songs, and I think Sonny and Cher are part of this list, that Dylan didn't recognize his own tunes. But there is something I want to interject here that Johnny probably knows, but you all won't. Now, when I lived in L.A. uh, for 14 happy years, all these old musician guys that were in the various bands of the time, be they the famous bands or bands like the Sons of Adam, who were great and never went anywhere, they all... When it came time to the birds, they got real serious and said respectful things. Whether or not the birds were good live or whatever, they always said respectful things. And I asked several of them, and including a guy named Denny Bruce, not Lenny Bruce, Denny Bruce. He's a, he's a manager and a, and a scenester. He was Neil Young's, he'd hate me being qualifying by this way. He was Neil Young's roommate uh, during the Springfield era. And Denny and all these guys would tell me... The reason the birds were so revered by the Southern California musicians of the day is look at these guys. They had uniforms early on that Little Richard's band stole. So they didn't have to wear uniforms. Until the birds, the entire Sunset Strip was were bands playing covers, and they were almost the same set, you know, uh a uh, Papa Umau Mau and uh Uh, New Orleans covers like Gary Lewis Bonds New Orleans wait on on your New Orleans and they'd end the show with what did I say the entire strip was dead choreography uh, matching suits grease in in the hair the whole thing and all those old guys revered the birds because they blew that out of the water now you could play original songs you could dress like you wanted to dress you could have long hair you could do what you wanted to do that didn't exist in 60 61 62 63 64 in the strip did not exist and their Until success then. at zeros blew it out of the water yep, it never yep. went back to being covers
0: now let's talk about the, the the folk rock sound which they obviously partly pioneered and you know this became this became the sound of 65 66 didn't it
3: well, yeah, to, uh, to the extent you've got the Sound of Silence there, which is a, a manufactured folk rock song. You know, it was, it was an acoustic song, and they put electrical instrumentation on it. Directly but, influenced by hearing Mr. Tambourine yeah, simply because of the birds. So they, you know, CBS basically doubled their money. They, and the Sound of Silence was far more successful over here by The Bachelors, of course, than it, than it was by Simon and Garfunkel. But seriously, you know, was num- that was number one in the, in, in the States. And... Um, you know, I mean, you know all the stories about how Paul Simon uh, he didn't even realise that it happened, no, no, and, sure. and and, and um, it, it transformed everything. But the the but it was really the end of the genesis of folk rock, if you will. I mean, we, we had um, you know Barry McGuire's was was top of the charts with "Evil Destruction." We we had the Turtles with with the "Name Me Babe," etc. etc. cetera. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, Sonny
0: and Cher, which was similar, and Sonny and Cher, yeah. Uh,
3: who you know who. <laughs> Stole the birds' act. They went to Syros and taped it. Yeah. Um, they taped. That's how they did all. Already want to do and got it and tried to get it out before the birds' version, which you know. Got a bit of sabotage going on there, I mean, it's, it's remarkable when you
0: think back. Yeah, yeah. Well, but they were old music business hands, weren't they? they were, these people—they yeah. were not green, were they? No. Time. Well, they, but it was still pretty young. Sunny Sunny Bono was pushing thirty, but you know, Cher certainly wasn't. Right, right, right. Mm. So folk rock was the was the sound of the day. So uh-huh. this is this is uh, this is a picture taken in Trafalgar Square. Later in that, you can in just that. imagine this
4: being done for a Melody maker photographer, actually, because uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, with a kind of heed the birds or it's um, probably, you know,
0: birds should... take flight. Do you know what I found when it's I was beautiful. looking? Uh, at, at, do you know where they, what they were on? They were on the cover of Fabulous magazine in 1965 in glorious color. It was kind of you know, which is your favorite bird, yes, girls? You know, it was it was not the cool hip thing at all. You know, so now this tour was a disastrous tour of England. It? Didn't go brilliantly. Is that fair to say? Because they no. shocked everybody by tuning, didn't they? They should not. They tuned up. <laughs> Well, I nobody had ever seen or heard a
3: group tune before. No, they hadn't. They, they, I mean, you could go, you could talk about this forever, but the point is that that's that's Trafalgar Square in what was the wettest summer of, in years, and um, it, it it was, um, and they stuck them in Trafalgar Square, surrounded by filthy pigeons, which is what you did to touring groups, particularly Americans at the time. But nevertheless, um, I think a missing factor. Um, in all of this is that when they came over to tour they'd been touring the states with a whole contingent of people they had dancers they had, they had a troupe they were followed by what was the burgeoning hippie movement before the word had even been invented they had 16, 17, 18, 19 year old girls fallen across the states they had something called Carl Franzoni who was 32 years old at the time and had curly hair. who was the king of the hipsters they had, a, they actually had a movement going in the states, but they came over here just the five of them, without their own instruments, without their own amplification equipment. They had to borrow, you know, material, the, the instruments and stuff to play. It wasn't, it, it, it was, and it was badly awesome, They were playing sometimes four, four or five sets a night. You know, they they were playing in places like the Ram Jam Club in Brixton, having played somewhere else in R&B clubs. You know, where Georgie Fame would be playing. I mean. It, it was a what they called a torture tour, and they'd just done a major coast-to-coast tour in the states. So it was, it was a, and of course the British. If Keith, if Keith Ortham had been here tonight, he actually interviewed them at the time, and he was very anti the birds in, in in the press. They certainly made enemies here without even realise, realising you needed, you could make enemies because they were terribly outspoken. They didn't do what. what ...pop stars were supposed to do. You know, Crosby could say anything to you. Is that
4: why the press didn't like them? Because the press were incredibly aggressive, weren't they? The English press.
3: Well, they were. I think the, the tour had been advertised... They'd been advertised as America by uh, the wonderful Mervyn Conn as America's answer to the Beatles, which wasn't even original to him. But calling anybody an answer to the Beatles and then sending them to the UK in 65... Yeah. Oh, uh, yes. Was, ...was not a clever thing to do. And... Um, and the irony was the Beatles came to see them and loved them and, and they had a great relationship with the yeah. Beatles. And actually, um, a month later, they're in um, Benedict Park sharing acid with, you know, in, in, in a shower with, you know, with, with Lennon and Harrison, who, who actually attended the
0: recording sessions for Turn, Turn, Turn. But you're moving on swiftly. No, well, you mentioned acid, yeah. and that takes us to the next yes. part of the, the story, really, which is how they make this transition from folk rockers to psychedelia.
3: Well, the birds were always moving forward, and when they returned to America, they went on a, an, another coast-to-coast tour. And um, I didn't believe it for a while, because McGuinn... T- somebody had told me that they bought a cassette recorder in the summer of 65. Cassette recorders didn't exist in the s- summer of 65, but apparently they did. I mean, somehow, McGuinn got an early cassette recorder from Philips in, a, in an experimental stage. It's only a little thing, as we know... But um, they taped Coltrane and um, Ravi Shankar, Ravi Shankar. And, and on each side, and they just played this constantly until it was part of their, you know, their, their psychic bloodstream, or whatever. And they, they began, you know, McGuinn began playing guitar like a saxophone, and um, we had Raga Rock sitar-like breaks when he was doing the B side, which is why. And um, this, this, this was all. Terribly innovative, and it got you know their manager Jim Jim Dixon suddenly got terri- thought this is incredibly significant that that the birds weren't just about turn turn turn, which he didn't like. He wanted them to do something even greater than that, and and the ingredients are there. You know, Cros- Crosby had seen um, Coltrane. I mean, you must remember, these, these were great in their way, great musicians and, and great tastemakers. Crosby was a tastemaker. He, he always liked to be surrounded by hip people and he was there from the start. And so was McGuinn. You know, he, he, knew, he so,
4: knew his stuff. And he, he, he around this time, met, met a guru who persuaded him to change his name because he was Jim McGuinn, wasn't he? he so, changed, so why yeah. did he change his name to Roger? I mean, it yeah. seems so extraordinary. If you're going to change it? your
3: name, yeah. well, no, why, well, why, why to Roger? He, he became involved with the, this religious organisation called Subud, um, which was basically, yeah, um, it was an Indonesian religion, for want of a better word, I know if you call it a religion. Yes, it was a religion. And it um, was pretty popular in America at the time, as various fringe-like things were. And he became part of that. And it was a very positive thing. And McGuinn's got this positive thing about him. He, he was into Norman Vincent Peale as well. I mean, you know, McGuinn comes from a originally a Roman Catholic background, but he went through a lot of different religions. But it was all about his, his, his motto, whenever he was interviewed at that time, he would always end the, begin or end the interview with, and I trust everything will turn out all right. And that was very important. He actually did a song called that years later as well. But the point was positivism. And that's what Crosby liked about him. Crosby liked the fact that McGuinn could be positive. He's the, he's the most remote and aloof character you'll ever meet, McGuinn, if you've, if you've met him, and I'm sure you have. Um, but yet there's a positivism about him which, which is extraordinary. And Crosby, that's how that relationship all worked and it worked very well for a time. And, um, yeah, the, so the religious part of it was was was, was profound. Well, the, the change of name didn't actually come about until as late as 67. Um, a lot of those people in Subard changed their name. Um, you know, there was... Who was he? The Bob... Oh, uh, Shepard? There was Bob... There was, no, there's, there's, there's more than him. The... the um, the guy did Sounds of Goodbye and, and um, the duo oh
0: right that'll have to go into like the religious doing, it history like of it. the Hamilton birds, Camp is, yeah Cam,
3: ha- Hamilton Camp was, oh, right, was yeah. like Bob Camp and he changed it to Hamilton which sounds pretty the, cool I suppose but, but with McGuinn, he his wife Dolores changed her name to Ianthe which is, <laughs> I- I-N-T-H-E, which, is which is that's pretty exotic not Xanthe not but Yanthe yeah, yeah. And, and they, no. they had to send a wave to Indonesia for permission, didn't they? And they, he, he, they? They said you, you, the vibration of your voice is an R. So they said send, send um, 10 names that begin with R, and he. They'll pick one. He and, and the Indonesian guy had to choose one, and he said he put a load of nonsense down, like rocket. Rocket, rocket, did rocket McGuinn, didn't he?
0: I, I, I still don't believe that. I mean, I'd, I'd like to see the list. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a, it, yeah, yeah. What he really. But put, it's yeah. all part of their mythology. Yeah. Retro, yeah. retro was one, and there we go. So they—they're they're, they're, you know very influenced by Indian music, as were the Beatles at the same time. It, it, are you starting to see tension in the group at this time? No, this is the key. Well, you not only see tension, this is the most,
3: probably one of the most important stages of the entire history of the birds. This is circa February, March 1966. You notice there's only four people at that that, that table. And um, on the 22nd of February, um, Gene Clark failed to get on a flight to New York. And this is a New York press conference. And. that's the press conference for eight miles high. That's, where they, that's why McGuinn is playing. He can't play it, by the he way. He can't play. Uh, um, <laughs> no, there, there is no, there is no sitar on why. It's McGuinn's Rickenbacker playing through this... Instrument in a cigar box with amplification
0: to make it sound like a cigar. Clark and Hillman look mightily impressed, don't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah really. they do. They really yeah. do. Yeah. Absolutely thrilled. Yeah, but it, it, it
3: was I mean, but isn't it amazing? They had a press conference for Eight Miles High." I mean, not yeah. the most commercial song, but they actually had a full pr- press conference conducted by Derek Taylor, who's already hyped it up and saying Eight Miles High" sh- will be, you know, could be their, th- it should be their third number one, and if it's not. They may be overtaken by the mamas and papas. And he's already... You know, talk about putting pressure on you before you've even begun. But they actually have a press conference. They really think that single's important. See, this is when singles were important. This is like mm-hmm. the Beatles yeah. having a press conference at Strawberry Fields Forever. You know, forget Hello, Goodbye. Forget Turn, Turn, Turn. This is the real deal. And 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 Gene's not there. Gene wrote most of the song, and he's not there. He's gone. They're, they're, they're at their weakest... Uh, what, what happened with Gene then? Because I mean, he, he was edged out of being the kind of lead
4: vocalist, he was edged out of playing the guitar, he, well, he and then out, also he'd made, written yeah. a lot of the songs, and so he was making
3: more money than the others, so all sorts no, of tensions. Yeah, Gene had made a, um, a hell of a lot of money, because all the money comes from songwriting. And he was the main songwriter in the group, he'd written maybe half a dozen songs on the first album... Um, so there was, uh, you know, a degree of jealousy there, but that's got nothing to do with him leaving in the end. The, the leaving, his leaving has to do with his own neurosis, his own nervous tension, um, and just... I mean, Derek Taylor <coughs> wrote wonderfully about this. He, 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 you know, most people send out a press release saying X has left the birds. He sent out this wonderfully rhapsodic um, piece about Gene has left the birds. He left not because of an argument, not because of this, he left because, and he goes into this wonderful prose which goes on for paragraph after paragraph about the punishing scene and, and, and the psychological condition he was in. it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And I spoke to um, Derek in, I, I suppose, 77, and I went back to him, I think I did the last interview before he, he died of cancer. And he said, I want to see you again. It's 20 years on. We, there is nothing more important to the birds apart from the fabs, of course. And, um, and decided that he would do this interview. And I asked him about the leaving of Gene Clark, and he says, you know, oh... And, but the emotion you get, this, he's a publicist. People aren't supposed to think like this, and he put this together, and he said, you know, when I pick up that cover of Fifth Dimension and I see the four of them on the carpet, and he's not there, he's not there on that carpet, I felt a tremendous sense of loss, the fact that he's not there. I don't like Family's breaking up. I don't like people leaving groups. And, and this is crucially important. I was devastated when he left in February 66. This wasn't supposed to happen. People, were, This was like John Lennon saying, yeah. oh, I'm leaving the Beatles. People didn't leave groups then. I know Alan Price left the Animals, but somehow that wasn't quite as important as this. <laughs> this is Gene Clark, the main songwriter, leaving the birds. Yeah. It would be very important. If McGuinn had left the birds, it would have been devastating. If Crosby had left the birds. I mean, those those are the big three. The other two, we could have survived, I think. But it, it was massive. And it was, it was a question of, could they even survive after this?
0: Seriously, it was that big. Well we'll move a a year on to Monterey. This is Monterey. Sid, tell us that you know summarise the importance of the Monterey Festival in the middle of nineteen sixty seven for those acts who played it.
2: There's two things I want to say. First I want to interject that that Gene had the flip side of Turn, Turn, Turn and Tambourine Man, right? He had a song on the flip side. And the significance of that is, when the mechanicals and the publishing come out, he gets as much money as the guy that's on the A side. Now he doesn't get the money for the airplay because the the number one songs are played. So Gene did have, to be fair, a wildly disproportionate amount of money relative to the other guys, because when you buy Tambourine Man with I, I Knew I'd Want You on the Other Side, Dylan gets as much money as Gene, and Gene gets as much money as Dylan. So there was that playing into it, as the guys now admit, now that they're all friends. Uh, the interesting thing about this is, when the Sunset Strip riots happened, it, it coalesced and galvanized the Southern California, L.A. community. And Dixon and Tickner and all Peter Fond and all sorts of guys that I, I met during my 15 years wandering around Hollywood... Uh, formed this thing called the Community uh, Committee for Facts and Freedom and it was, they had benefit concerts to uh, raise money to get guys out of jail that had been arrested by the LAPD and all this stuff all because they wanted to shut down the kids walking on the Sunset Strip all because they wanted to build a, th- a freeway through it which is now San City Boulevard but out of that horrible uh, scene that's the movie The Riot on the Sunset Strip I'm going really fast aren't I? Have I lost everybody already? No, carry on. Out of that scene when they had the riots on the Sunset Strip and the quickie movie that came out after it, these people were now really rubbing elbows in a friendly manner. I mean, Peter, Paul, and Mary and the Birds, and all the various bands of the scene, right? They're now... And their managers are being thrown together because the LAPD are beating up their, their fans on the Sunset Strip. And out of that... Derek Taylor and uh, Lou Adler and this whole crew start getting together this idea. The, why don't we have a pop festival? There's jazz festivals. There's the Newport Folk Festival. Why don't we have a pop festival? And this is the brilliant thing that came out of it. And I was on uh, Radcliffe and McHoney not long ago talking about it. And one of the things that this did was a benefit concert. I think everybody played for free except Ravi Shankar, who had to have money because of the... Uh, Instruments are very incredibly fragile and all this other stuff. But I think everybody else played for free. And I was very ill during my wanderings in LA, very ill in the early 1980s. And like all dumb young musicians, I didn't have health insurance. And you know where we're going with that with Trump care and Obamacare so I didn't know what to do and somebody told me this is about 83 or 84 I was getting pretty ill you can go to the LA Free Clinic this is 1983 or 84 it's still funded by the money from the Monterey Pop Festival that was of course invested in various things and I got treated unbelievably enough in the United States of America for free in 1983 or 84, all due to that festival, which I think is remarkable Mm -hmm. considering healthcare in the United States. But that was really where everybody came together um, when I was in LA during my wanderings one of my roommates, get ready for a name to drop was Eric Burden, I lived with Burden on and off for two years, and he talked about Monterey all the time, all the time big, big, big fan of it, and he t- he's the guy that told me the story I've, I've been dining out on, that Harrison Ford as a young jobbing actor was he's, he is and apparently was then, and still is, a brilliant carpenter yeah. and Harrison Ford helped build the stages which of course The Who and Hendrix tried to take apart <laughs> <laughs>
4: And Crosby went into a great uh, monologue about the glories of LSD and, and, and his very much assassination theories about Kennedy. Uh, yeah. Kennedy. To this
2: day, I can, all I, can, repercussions. Yeah, I can have Hillman or McGuinn interrupt and say how embarrassed they were about that, to this day. To this day. <laughs> very embarrassed about Crosby's. Because, you know, when you're on stage and you speak, you speak for the band, whether you mean to or yes. not.
0: Yeah. You speak yeah, you, for the guys. Yes. So if yeah, I come out and say...
2: You've got to watch it. Because <laughs> if I say something about Obama or Trump and health care in front of any ensemble I'm with, everybody better agree with me, because out, when we walk off stage, it's going to be, what are
0: you talking about? Yeah, 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 know? yeah. No show. Sure. Like, uh, ju- ju- we're jumping ahead here because we we, just, we want to cover the you know got a lot of ground to cover yeah. the the great country the great move to country Johnny yeah what what instigates that what I'm, I'm
3: tempted to say Hillman and Graham Parsons you know um, uh, with regard to the birds it's uh, it's complicated There's a whole load of things I mean you know you talk about the excesses of psychedelia country was always there there's nothing nothing new about it but the idea that um, Rock stars would, would be playing country. The birds certainly weren't the first two, um, but there were a whole load of people that were. You know, Mike Nesmith in the Monkees, even, you know, Ricky Nelson going way back. Um, the idea that the birds, after notorious Bird Brothers, um, that's less than a year, nine months, maybe the best part of, they would produce this album was an extraordinary thing, and a lot of people had a, problems with that at the time, particularly over here. Um, Notorious Bird Brothers was was incredibly successful here. You know, it got to the top 15 in the charts, first time since Turn, Turn, Turn that they'd actually got back into the album charts. It was a big album for them. And, um, and of course, they toured over here in 68. And there's tapes available of that, but they are amazing Um, when they played Middle Earth. They're actually playing both stuff from the forthcoming Sweethearts. they're, They're playing things like Hickory Wind, and there 's a Christian life, but at the middle Earth yeah the, 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 extra, the, yeah, but they 're also playing stuff from the toys bird brothers they 're playing the, which, which are like complete, two completely different groups, and it actually results in, in I think some of the finest tapes ever because it's, it's, it's almost like a, a multiple version of the birds in, in with different factions playing two completely different styles of music, and actually pulling it off quite well it 's a real um, a, a great miss that there's not. Um, a live tape of that particular period because it's 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 a it 's a wonderful fusion and of course they then went into the sweetheart direction um and it's an odd album, because people call it country rock, but it's, 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 country there's country. not much rock in it. It's, it is straight country. They, you know, we, 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 it was never conceived as a country But people rock moved album. very quickly in those days, didn't
0: they? And they well, they, they like made... to
3: label things, and, yeah. and, and that's that, that just, yeah. that just mislabeled, in my view. But it's an extraordinary record.
0: Yeah. We'll come back to Grand Parsons yeah, yeah. later, because I, I did, to borrow this, this uh, family tree from the great Pete frame, just, yeah. I just included this just to illustrate what happened to the birds... Fair is that, you know, you get line-up, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you know. Yep. What, what happens, you know, McGuinn stays there and and people just leave and join? Is that, is that a fair well, well, it's more summary?
3: Com- no, it's more complicated than that. If that was the case, then that would be, you know, a familiar story of a band and the devolution of a band, which wouldn't be particularly interesting, you know, it, it happens... But what this is different. This is a sort of pullulating Olympus of, of of LA rock. This the, the, the birds virtually invented. You could argue LA rock. I mean, look at it. You've got the Flying Breeder Brothers. You've country music. You've got Crosby, Stills, and Nash and the Young. The Eagles. These are these are almost yeah. yeah. Which leads ultimately to the Eagles. There's Manassas, there's, there's there's the Southern Fury Hillman Band, and all the rest of it. But and there's Diddard and Clark, which are, who aren't on there from the Gene Clark period. Um, it's an entire movement. It's, it, 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 they, they've actually created an LA movement of rock here. I mean, even Gene Clark is probably the first singer-songwriter. If, if yeah. he, he spawns that whole tradition, which culminates with Neil Young, James Taylor, and all the rest of it. You could have another tree going down with that, even though he's not part of it. Um, the birds were so innovative in so many areas, um, but what came from them? All five of them. Even Michael Clark was in Firefall. Um, you could argue that the, that, that whole 70s sort of studio anemic rock or, or um, AOR or whatever it's called I mean, the Farfall were incredibly successful one of the great ironies of all this is that when you get to 1979, the most successful bird is Michael Clark. Crosby can't get a record contract McGuinn's Hillman can't you know, he's, he's, he's now a bluegrass player um, when I say record contract I mean a major record contract, the major labels have gone, Crosby came to me and said um, Cavill turned down my album man eh? they turned down my album. It was, you know, it's like Charles Dickens going, "So they don't want my novels anymore. <laughs> it, it, it was, he actually found it difficult to believe he right. would be turned down. And that's, but that's how big Crosby's or National Young were. And the idea that Michael Clark would be left standing with Firefall, I mean, is, yeah. is,
0: is an irony, in, you know. I just, you know, I just want moment. to talk a minute about the, yeah. you know, the many people who were in those lineups towards the end, because I do think it's a remarkable achievement of this second volume here. Which has you know subtitled "The Lives and Tragic Deaths yeah. of Gene Clark, Michael Clark, Kevin Kelly, Graham Parsons, Clarence White, and Skip batten yeah that's a lot of tragic deaths isn't yeah. it to come out of one group it is, and um you know, and obviously it may
3: not be the end, but uh yes it, it is, and they they're, they're all odd, strange deaths. Um, they are, aren't they? Can you strange? give us a resume? Okay. Of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> without right, yeah.
4: wishing to sound too kind of morbid here, but they are oh, okay, extraordinary well, stories, let's
0: get particularly all grand
3: Parsons. Um, well, I was originally going to write it in the order of death, but it didn't work because I had to. I decided to rewrite it then in the order of their appearance in the group, because otherwise you were going back and forwards all the time. So to take them in that order, I mean... So what
4: happened to Gene Clark?
3: Gene I mean, you, Clark had It's a long story. No, he had a rough life. I mean, he was he was um, you know he was a heavy drinker all his life. Um, he indulged in in in, in Coke um, he and heroin as well. But it mainly was the drink with Gene. Gene. Gene was the drink, and you know, he had a very serious stomach operation. He he suddenly should have just given up everything after the stomach operation and, and concentrated on on just recuperation and never going near. Any abuse, any any abusive substance whatsoever for the rest of his life might have saved him if he if he did, but he didn't. The, the, you know, the, and there's a lot of um, you know in the Gene Clark story. There's a, there's a lot of blame going back and forth. I mean, everybody seems to be attacking everybody else. Um, they make him out to be very much a victim, and it's far more compli- complicated than that. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff is self inflicted, and Gene Clark created a lot of problems for himself. It wasn't you know, it wasn't. Everybody um, creating the problems for him, and um, you know, there's a famous moment where Hoyt Axton, at towards the end, gives him heroin, and that sets him off on this final down, downward spiral. I think not to blame Hoyt Axton; it could have been anybody. But there's, um, you know, it, it's 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 just a very sad story because Gene was one of those people who could pull himself back from the abyss again and again. I mean, he's taking drugs and 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 um, going. You know, and withdraw things, and disappearing to Hawaii, and coming back clean again. He had a fantastic constitution, and he was able to do that. Crosby who's not in that book, <laughs> Margaret should be, but I don't know quite how he He's had thought. a liver transplant. <laughs> well, he did, but so well, loads of people have had a liver transplant. Yeah. So liver transplants aren't supposed to, to... He had a liver transplant, what, 94? I remember talking to a doctor said, how long was you giving He said, oh, you, liver transplant, you could get 10 years out of that, and now, here we are now. Yeah. And, um, and
0: he's still going strong. I um, can't let you leave the yep. subject of Gene Clark without telling people about what happened at Gene Clark's wake.
3: Oh well, um, yeah, that was that was a sad thing. Well, you know, the, the wake of Gene Clark, well, it wasn't even a it wasn't a wake. It was um, a viewing in in um, Hollywood for the body, and um, they decided to to have a viewing of the body, which they normally do. And David Carradine was there amongst others, and um, he pulled the body out of the. Coffin and start shaking it to remonstrate
0: with him over to it.
3: remonstrate with him about an incident involving allegedly involving his daughter or whatever, um, and uh, that caused a minor sensation at the time within there. But it was just it was it was it was typical of uh, it was just the kind of thing. that that'd happen just one paragraph story. in this
0: book, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty more shock <laughs> Plenty horror <events>. Plenty <laughs> more. Yeah. So Graham Parsons, who I flipped over earlier. Grand Parsons, you know, not the most sympathetic character, is that fair to say? Depends who you speak to. A lot of people are very sympathetic towards Grand
3: Parsons, and rightly so. Um, A lot of people aren't. I mean... He, he was Grand Parsons. He was incredibly wealthy. He had a trust fund. He didn't have to play if he didn't want to, and he was working with working musicians who had to play to make a living. And he comes across as incredibly charming. He managed oh, to inveigle his way into Jack Nicholson's world and into Peter Fonda's yeah. world. And oh yeah, um, yes, yes. And he into was. the birds, you know. Yeah, no, and, and all the women laughed at me, You know, McGuinn's um, wife thought he was. Char- charm incarnate, you know, she, yeah. she she too loved him, they all loved him, um, I think the birds, you know, loved him, uh, McGuinn liked him, and you have all these stories that you assume people don't like each other, but, you know, he was always, often at McGuinn's house, playing pool till three in the morning, I think he was closer to McGuinn than, apart from Hillman, than the other members of the birds, really, I mean, you know, people talk about Gene, or, I don't think he knew him particularly well, but McGuinn did, and, um... Yeah, it's it's a complex story. I mean, every all of these things you see, you can look at from a different angle. You 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 have certain things that are set in stone, and until you look back and think, well, is this true or is it not true? Like Graham's relationship with his father, he hated his father. Hillman says things like, you know, he did the worst thing he could ever do. You know, how could he? He bought him a club. And I'm thinking, well, what's so bad about that? <laughs> he bought him a club. And he said, you're never going to learn discipline that way. And I can understand that's telling us more about Hillman the way he thinks about the world, which is fine and, and true and good. But um, I don't think there was anything wrong with Bob Parsons buying Graham a club to play in. It's actually quite a magnanimous thing to do. But his relationship with his father is complex. Um, and if you look at it from a certain angle, you can see it as very negative. You look at it from another angle and think, well, if it was that bad, how come... How come he had his father, for instance? How come, he, how come he had his father conducting his wedding? And how come he even kept the name Parsons if he hated his father that much? He could have changed. He could have gone back to Connor. He could have done loads of things. It's, it's, it's a complicated story. Mm. And as with all these things, it depends who you speak to and what their motives are. And uh, as with all human life,
0: things aren't straightforward. So, uh, moving on to the subject of human life, actually, Sid, as a a kind of musician and a and a student of you know, and, and you've written books about musicians yourself. Do you find that the stories are more interesting as the people get older? That the stories told after thirty, forty years are more interesting than the you know, the first biographies which are written, you know, well,
2: I, I six think six or
0: I, seven years after the events.
2: In direct answer, I think what's happening is as people get older, they don't necessarily get wiser. <laughs> What they, there is a certain amount of, in my opinion, not anybody else is on this panel, but in my opinion, I see this over and over again in dealing with the principles we're talking about tonight and people that I know that aren't in the birds but in other rock bands or whatever, or other walks of life. As you get older, it starts to become what I call legacy time. And they start to think about if I continually bitch about. Bob Hope, I'm going to go down as the guy that bitched and held the grudge against Bob Hope. So people tend to start looking at the obituary pages. I'm I'm, I'm speaking metaphorically, of course. But all of a sudden, everybody was friends. Not all of a sudden, but as the years go on, the same comments about the same characters in the same situations in the same rock groups get mellower and all. Oh, he was a, just a big lug, and I was all overplayed. Our arguing and stuff. And when you know that someone perhaps slept with someone's wife, or when you know that they had a fist fight, or when something more ugly than that went down. All of a sudden, everything's oh, it was great. He was smooth. No, it was never as bad as the. And the other one is drug abuse. There's some guys that have been brutally honest after they they clean up and they talk about drugs. Lou Reed and all. And I'm not bad mouthing Lou Reed. I'm just saying drugs are bad. Blah blah blah. All these guys that did these amounts of drugs. Lou Reed, David Crosby, other stuff. And yet. They did all these drugs, and as they get on and, on and they have kids or they have grandkids, and all of a sudden, this huge "drugs are bad, drugs are bad, drugs are bad." And I'm not saying drugs are good, but I'm saying it's legacy time, David. Yeah, That's yeah. what we're talking about. And they're looking—they're looking at how they're going to be remembered.
3: And also, um, religious conversions as well has to be added to the mix. I think yes, very particularly in America. Yeah. Um, you know, you got the born again movement, um, which had a big effect, going right back to Dylan, and you know that affected viewpoints and, and Sid's right in the sense that. Some people... McGuinn's a good example. He doesn't deny anything. You know, he's... He's yes. saying, yeah, I was, I was doing co- cocaine yeah. every day and I was doing, uh, you know, LSD, and he talks almost nostalgically about it at times. He doesn't sort of... Whereas other people actually will try and cover up their the drug abuse and, and really seriously downplay it to the extent yeah. that, oh, I, I never really was into that. I always had discipline or, I, you know, I, I was always in, in control of it. Whether they were or not is...
0: Well, no, you, you can read the story, warts and all, and there's room for loads of warts. Well, yeah, and glory as well. And glory as well in these two books, which Johnny's going to do you a really good deal on uh-huh. in a minute. Oh, right. But first, we're going to finish with a parlour game, OK? You've got, to, you've got to choose what's the best birds' album, OK? We're going to do this in order. All right. OK, there they all are with Johnny's book, Left and and Right, okay? Mark Ellen, going to start with you. I I would just get in a a plug for a couple of
4: tracks, actually, which aren't on the album I'm going to choose, but This Wheel's On Fire, their version of that, is absolutely fantastic. Just stuff I'm recommending. And also a song called Have You Seen Her Face, which is absolutely amazing, the most immaculate. If if, if never wants an introduction to the birds, that is glorious, glorious harmonies. But the record I think I'd probably choose, actually, is the first one, which is Mr Tambourine Man. It's got four Dylan songs on it. It's got the Bells of Rimney. It's got Leon Russell playing the piano. Um, It's got, more importantly, that kind of wonderful, warm, ambient, uh, you know, Pacific breeze of a sound that uh, is the signature sound that they made, which I remember so fondly when I heard it on the radio the first time when I was a kid. And I I would say you cannot possibly go wrong with that first album, it's not—it's not the great songs of the birds because they went on to write those more songs themselves. It's mostly cover versions, but it's the great sound of the birds. It's
0: well, brilliant. nice try, Mark, but you're okay, wrong. Okay, I know. No. Johnny, Johnny's going to have the right answer. I know that the correct answer, and you know, we've got to be polite to Sid and Johnny by allowing them. But you know, but the correct answer is Fifth Dimension. It's as simple as that. Okay, the one after Gene left. You know, it, it's just—it's got the—it's got the remnants of that folk rock sound, but it's edging into psychedelia. It's got. Wild Mountain Time on it. It's got the title track, which I I absolutely love, and it's got a great sleeve. Okay, so the answer is fifth dimension. Uh said when you you know, you can you know, well,
2: I mean the first enter thing I, this game? The first thing I'd like to say is you have to get a copy of this book, Johnny's Volume Two, because on page three thirty-nine a member of one of my contemporaries on the LA scene refers to me as a self-righteous whore, and the lowest <laughs> This is me. He's referring to me as not Johnny, thank God. And I'm also, bizarrely, thank you for putting it bizarrely, Johnny. Bizarrely, I'm referred to as the lowest scumbag on earth. <laughs> Page 339 in this book. <laughs> <laughs> now, the only reason I know that is William F. Buckley used to always... Get his rival Gore Vidal to send him a signed copy of a book, hoping Vidal would ask William F. Buckley to send the book back. He never did till towards the end when Vidal for whatever reason said, Bill, could you send me one of your books, please? So Buckley at the back where it had in the index, Vidal, comma gore, wrote, Hi, knowing Vidal would go there first. <laughs> so very good I looked up Sid Griffin first and thought page 339 I'm the lowest scumbag on earth (laughs) (laughs) right my favorite birds album and it is very very hard to pick but I'm going to say notorious I think the fact that those three guys with Crosby's help and some session player help could come up with an album that strong under such duress is flat out amazing
0: okay well Johnny
3: well I'm I'm I've always found it very difficult to choose between two of them, uh, and the, the, the two that I find difficult to choose, they're almost like one to me in a way, uh, are Younger than Yesterday and Notorious Bird Brothers. To me, that's, that's the peak. But having said that, um, I bought all of them in order, and all of them on the day they came out, pretty well. Um, I spent a lot of time studying that first album because uh, I didn't have uh, a record player or, indeed, electricity. <laughs> Excellent. Just imagining Uh, what it sounded like, and so I memorised things like you know the serial numbers and things like that. (laughs) Uh, And I got particularly mystified on the second album. Um, There's 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 no writing credit for he was a friend of mine, and I used to look at that and also dream of how I could actually ever hear these songs like (laughs) Oh Susanna. Um, But you know, by special appointments of friends that had radiograms, I could go and have a private listen but I got a re- my first record player coincided with the, the release of um, So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star and two weeks after So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star was re- released that album came out and the fourth one and so I, don't, I don't know it was, it was a strange thing with Younger Than Esther because I was being laughed at at school by then because the birds weren't having hits anymore, and it, you know it was you know, you you sh- you, sh- you, sh- you shouldn't even though um, you know the Beatles and the Stones that was okay or the Kings, but the birds weren't, and they were American and they weren't having hits anymore. So it, was, it wasn't particularly cool in my world to be a, a Birds fan. There was no concept then of, 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 of anything altern- alternative in my world. So it was quite a brave thing to, to love younger than yesterday. And I think the defining moment for you is I, there was a programme on the Light programme called Newly Pressed, and I came home as I had in the summer of 65, and they were playing a new song from this album by the Birds. And I thought they were going to play a Birds track, and they played of all things they played a song called Time Between I played it and I thought oh, I'm not sure about this album it, it, you know Mind Gardens on it and it was all a bit strange and I heard this and it was very commercial I thought I think the fact of hearing that on the radio then playing it and it all seemed to come together at once and um, I played that record every, maybe four times a day for, for the next year on on average I, I you know uh, and I, I still play it to this day. So it, so, it has to be Younger Than Yesterday. I'm so going.
0: our four are the first one, yep. Fifth Dimension, Younger Than Yesterday and Notorious Bird Brothers. Nobody batting for bird maniacs, I note. <laughs> <laughs> you know. You do, you do. There's bound to be somebody in this room going, actually, oh, he's probably got one good I track. I think you'll I find. I think you'll <laughs> find he's got one good track. That's all we've got time for. Uh, Johnny, these two books are That's available t- to purchase yeah. this evening at the bargain price of, together...
3: Oh, well, um, yeah, 33% off both of them. And um, that, that that bottom one there, volume 115, the top Ooh. one's 20. And, of course, anybody who buys either one of them um,
0: gets a free copy of Star Makes Swingali's thrown in as well. Yeah. Absolutely terrific. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> and, and so... First of all, thanks very much uh, for giving, uh, uh, treating us to his insights and his and his bare knees and you know all yeah, kinds yeah. of stories. Sid Griffin, yeah. and yeah. the author of this absolutely extraordinary uh, piece of work, who will later on tell you about how he and Mark Lewison nearly came to grief recently and uh, interrupted uh, yes. the flow of Hence enormous great authoritative rock biographies. Johnny Rogan.
4: This podcast was brought to you by The Word.